Hi, my name is George Batty, and I thank you for coming to our website, willofthelord.com, to study with us. Today, as I record this study, it's March 12, 2014. I've entitled this study, The Holy Spirit 101, and we're going to be just taking an introductory look at the subject of the Holy Spirit. Let me begin by first asking eight questions for you to consider. I hope that you either know the answers already or you will learn the answers as we go along. Number one, how many names does the Holy Spirit have? Number two, what is the Holy Spirit? Number three, how many gods do we believe in? Number four, what five things was the Spirit sent to do? Number five, how does the Holy Spirit influence people today? Number six, when a man cuts down a tree, how does he do it? Number seven, what man tried to curse but couldn't? Number eight, why are some people never converted? And why are some Christians never very strong? So you think about those questions. If you don't know the answers now, I hope you will know the answers by the time we're finished. And I hope you'll understand why I'm asking these questions. To begin, let's start by reading Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, There, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here is the first reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is greatly misunderstood today. This study is a very basic presentation of the Spirit's person and work. There are 52 different names given in the Bible for the Holy Spirit. Thirteen of those names are peculiar to the Old Testament. Thirty-four of these names are peculiar to the New Testament. And five of these names are common to both Testaments. So if you add them up, there are 52 different names. An easy way to remember that is there are 52 weeks in the year. And that's how many different names are in the Scriptures to call or describe the Holy Spirit. Some of the more prominent names given in the Bible include Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, if you're reading the King James Version, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of Jesus, Spirit of Truth, Spirit of Grace, Spirit of Glory, the Comforter. These are all different names for the one Holy Spirit of God. These different names are used to describe different functions which the Holy Spirit performs, different characteristics that He has. All right, here's the first question I want to ask. What is the Holy Spirit? A person? or a thing. One time a young preacher came to study with me and I asked him that. I said, let's just begin with something basic. What is the Holy Spirit, a person or a thing? And this young preacher said, well, I don't know. I never got into it that deep. When he said this, I thought to myself, if this young preacher doesn't know, then perhaps there are others in the church who don't know really about the Holy Spirit, but they're afraid to ask. And so we begin with the most basic question, is the Spirit a person or a thing? Well, the Holy Spirit is a person. 
He's not an inanimate object. He's not an impersonal force or power. He's not a thing. First, the Holy Spirit is a person. We know this because the Holy Spirit performs actions which only a person can perform. In John chapter 16, verse 13, the Bible says, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. Notice that consistently in this passage, the Holy Spirit is called a He. Is not, he is not a thing. So He is a He. He comes, according to this passage. He guides. He speaks. He hears. He tells things. All of these are actions which only a person can do. Next, the Holy Spirit is a person because He has knowledge like a person. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Here, the Holy Spirit knows things. In fact, He knows what God knows. Next, the Holy Spirit is a person because He has volition or the power to make decisions. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, the Bible says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. So the Holy Spirit has will or willpower to make decision. He's a person because He has the power to love. In Romans chapter 15, verse 30, the Bible says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. So the Spirit can love people, Love, and that's why we say the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit can be grieved, therefore, we know it, this is a person. In Ephesians 4, verse 30, the Bible says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He can be lied to. You can only lie to people, and since the Spirit can be lied to, we draw the conclusion He is a person. Acts 5, verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Not only is the Holy Spirit a person, but the Holy Spirit is a divine person. He's said to have the same attributes that God the Father Himself has. He is the eternal Spirit, Hebrews 9 and verse 14. So He's like God in the sense that He's eternal. He has no beginning or end. He is omniscient. That means He knows everything, just like God. Everything God knows the Holy Spirit knows, according to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, which we already read. He is omnipresent. That means He is everywhere present, just like God. He sees everything. In Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, the Bible says, Where can I go from your Spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. According to this passage then, you cannot go anywhere where the Holy Spirit does not see you and he's not there. Again, in John chapter 14 verse 16, Jesus said, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. There are two Greek words that are translated another in the New Testament. The first Greek word is the word alos. This means another 
of the same kind. The other word that's translated another is the word heteros. This means another of a different kind. Heteros is what we get the English word heterosexual. A heterosexual is someone who prefers the opposite sex. So heteros means another of a different kind. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus used the word alos. He will pray to the Father, and the Father will give another helper of the same kind as Jesus. That's the idea. Jesus was divine, according to John 1, verse 1. The Holy Spirit is another helper of the same kind as Jesus was, John 14, verse 16. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is a divine person, just like Jesus. In summary, the Holy Spirit is truly a divine person, and he is a member of the Godhead. That's why we read in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So these three divine beings make up the one God of the Bible. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Some people accuse us of believing in three gods. No, we believe in one God, which is composed of three beings. To illustrate how this is even possible, the Bible says when a man and a woman marry each other, they are one flesh. Matthew 19, verse 6. Even though they are called one flesh, They're two separate individual persons. The husband has more authority than the wife, according to Ephesians 5, verse 23. But just because the husband has more authority than the wife, it doesn't mean that he is more human than the wife. Each one is equally human or equally flesh, even though the husband has more authority than his wife. And so the Father has more authority than the Son, according to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. The Son has more authority than the Holy Spirit, John 14, verse 16. But the Father is not more divine than either the Son or the Spirit. They are all equally divine. And so just like the husband and the wife are equally flesh, they are one flesh, They are united and they are one flesh. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are united and they are one God. They are equally divine. Each member of the Godhead had a time in history when he was the dominant one interacting with men. First, there was God the Father. His dispensation, so to speak, was from the creation until Jesus came to the earth. In other words, he was the predominant member of the Godhead interacting with man. Jesus and the Holy Spirit were both busy doing things, I'm sure, during this time. But the Father was the predominant one. During this Old Testament dispensation, uh, God dealt with men through angels and other agents. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. This is talking about God the Father. 
So he at various times and in various ways spoke to the men of old through prophets. But second, there is Jesus the Son. His dispensation, so to speak, began with his birth from Mary, and it ended with his resurrection and ascension back into heaven. In other words, he was uh, on the earth speaking and interacting directly with men. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, the Bible says, "...has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the worlds." Now, this time of the Lord Jesus Christ, his earthly ministry, was much shorter in time than the Father's dispensation during the Old Testament, but his interaction with man was every bit as significant as the Father's. Well, third, the Holy Spirit. His dispensation began after Jesus ascended back into heaven and will last until the world ends. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So Jesus was going to depart and then send the Holy Spirit. God the Father and Jesus the Son are still doing things in heaven. They're still active, but the Spirit is the predominant member of the Godhead interacting with men today. Each member of the Godhead had a distinct function in man's salvation. The Father is the one who devised the saving plan of how man was going to be saved. Some people argue and say, I don't want to be saved by a plan. I want to be saved by the man. Listen, no one is going to be saved by accident. If anyone is ever saved, it's going to be because it was planned. Being saved by the man involves the plan of God. Second, not only did the father devise the plan, but the son enacted the plan. He put the plan into motion. He carried the plan out. But number three, the Holy Spirit revealed the plan of God. The plan would have done no good. No one would have ever been saved if the Holy Spirit had not revealed how the plan worked and what we have to do in order to have this plan save us from our sins. All right, this brings up our next point. What work was the Holy Spirit sent to do? Well, he actually was sent to do five things. Number one, he was to reveal the Word of God. In John 14, verse 26, Jesus is speaking to his apostles. He's not speaking to every Christian. He's not speaking to every person in the world. He's speaking to his apostles. He said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Well, the apostles needed this. Sometimes I find myself walking into a store, and when I walk into the door, I'm standing there wondering, why did I come? You see, I forget very easily what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, the apostles needed help so they would not forget. In John chapter 14 and verse 26, Jesus said the Spirit will bring to their remembrance everything Jesus said to them. So he was going to be a great help to the apostles. In John 16 verse 13, again to the apostles, Jesus said, however, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you 
into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. This was the Holy Spirit guiding not every Christian, but the apostles were being guided into all truth. All right? Number two, that was the first thing he was supposed to do is to reveal the word of God. Secondly, the Holy Spirit was to confirm the word of God. You see, the message of the gospel was a brand new message to the world, and it needed to be confirmed or verified that it actually came from heaven. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, they were given to confirm the truthfulness of the gospel that was being revealed through the apostles. In Mark chapter 16, verses 17 through 20, the Bible says, These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. So we see the purpose of miracles that the apostles performed was to confirm the truthfulness of this new gospel message that they were revealing. Number three, the Holy Spirit would magnify Jesus. So here's what he's doing now. First, he's going to reveal the word. Then he will confirm the truthfulness of that word with miraculous power. And then he will magnify Jesus. John 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. How is he going to testify of Jesus? Through the words revealed by the apostles. In John 16, verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. How is the Holy Spirit going to magnify Jesus? By declaring what Jesus did, who he is, and what he requires of men. Number four, the Spirit would convict the world of sin. In John 16, verse 8, when he has come, this is speaking about the Holy Spirit, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Number five, the Spirit would also convert men to Christ. John 3, verse 5 says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In Titus 3, verse 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. All right, question. How would the Holy Spirit accomplish these last three items? Now, the question that I'm asking here is not if the Spirit is active. I'm not asking if he's going to do something. Of course he's going to do something. I'm asking how will he accomplish his work? How will he magnify Christ? How will he convict the world? How will he convert men? 
Some people read these passages about the Spirit helping us, guiding us, and doing all kinds of things as if I didn't believe any of it. I admit the Holy Spirit is guiding us and He's helping us and He's doing good things for us. I agree with every single passage that gets read. The question I'm asking is, how does He do this work? Will He do these things miraculously, without any instrument, directly, uh, with His bare hands, so to speak, by touching the sinner's heart directly? Or will He use an instrument? Will He operate indirectly or through an intermediate agent? Most people choose the first option. They say the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven and directly touches the hearts of men and women and produces within them a changed attitude, a changed heart. The Bible, though, teaches the Spirit accomplishes His work through an instrument, through the written Word which He revealed, inspired, and confirmed to be true. He glorifies Christ through the written Word. He convicts men of sin through the written word. There is no one convicted of sin without hearing the scriptures. And he converts men through the agency of his written word. Now, let me illustrate how the Holy Spirit does this. I want you to suppose there's a a little tree in a yard. And this tree needs to be cut down. And so a man takes an axe and he begins to chop on the tree. And he uses that axe, and he chops the tree down. Now, the axe was an instrument. Now, the man never uh, touched the tree with his bare hands. Would someone be so foolish as to say, Well, you know, I watched that very carefully, and that man never touched that tree directly with his bare hands. He didn't cut down that tree. I watched it. It was the axe that did the cutting. Wouldn't that be foolish for someone to talk like that? Because the instrument would have been useless if the man had not been using the instrument. And in the same way, the Spirit has an instrument that he's using. The instrument which the Holy Spirit uses would not by itself be able to convert anyone, but in the hands of the Spirit, the instrument can convert sinners. In Ephesians 6, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Here, the Spirit is said to have a sword. It's the Word of God. The written Word is the instrument used by the Holy Spirit to convert people from their sins. Now, I'm going to read this next sentence carefully. I want you to listen very, very carefully to it because it's so important. Anytime the Holy Spirit influences a man, he does so by the instrumentality of the written word. Let me say that again. Anytime the Holy Spirit influences a man, he does so by the instrumentality of the written word. The Holy Spirit never directly operates upon a sinner or a saint to convert them or to sanctify them. Always, always the Holy Spirit influences people through the instrument of His Word. Now, if the Spirit were operating upon the hearts of people directly and miraculously, 
then everybody would be converted and everybody would be equally spiritually minded. The direct power of the Holy Spirit cannot be resisted by a mortal man. You think about Balaam. According to Numbers chapter 24, verses 1 through 2, the Holy Spirit came upon Balaam. He was going to uh, try to curse Israel on behalf of Balak. And he thought he could resist the miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit. But every time he tried to curse, the Spirit took over and forced him to say a blessing. That illustrates that a mortal man cannot resist the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. He's God. And if the Holy Spirit decides you're going to bless somebody, buddy, you're going to bless them. You don't have any choice because the Spirit's making you do that. And in contrast, the influence of the Holy Spirit's word can be resisted. Men can resist the words of the Spirit according to Acts chapter 7. Verses 51 and 52. Men can refuse to listen to the word. They can refuse to obey the word. So since the Spirit influences men by means of his written word, I understand now why some people aren't converted. If they were converted with a direct operation of the Spirit, they would be converted. But if they're converted through the instrument of the word, I understand why some are not converted because they reject the word and they ignore the word. It's understandable now why some Christians are never really very spiritual because they reject the word. They ignore it. They don't study the scriptures and the spirit is not influencing them. Now to drive home the point that the spirit operates upon the hearts of men only by means of his instrument, the written scriptures. Let's notice that every influence exerted by the Holy Spirit upon the hearts of men is always said to be done by the written word. Now, to illustrate this, let me give this illustration. If you read in the newspaper one day that Susan uh, was killed by a man, and then the next day, you read the newspaper again, and it has a follow-up story. It says, Susie was killed by a gun. Would you jump up and say, these newspaper people, they don't know what they're talking. First, they said uh, it was a man that killed her, and now they're saying it was a gun that killed her. Which one is it? Well, we put two and two together, and we draw the correct conclusion. A man was using the gun. And he killed Susie. See, Now, in the same way, when we read the Holy Spirit does something to a man, and then we read the Word of God does the same thing, the only logical conclusion is the Holy Spirit was using his Word as an instrument to accomplish this work. What might the Spirit do for us then? Number one, he might convert us. But the Bible says that the Word of God converts us. And so, putting those two things together, we conclude the Holy Spirit uses the Word to convert us. In Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The second thing the Spirit might want to do is to enlighten me. But the Bible says the Scriptures enlighten me. 
So the Spirit must be using the Scriptures as an instrument to enlighten my thinking. In Psalm 19, verse 8, the Bible says, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The third thing, the Holy Spirit might want to give me life. But the Bible says the Scriptures give me life. So the Spirit is using the Scriptures as an instrument to give life to me. In Psalm 119, verse 50, This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. Number four, the Holy Spirit might want to lead me. But the Bible says the Scriptures lead me. Therefore, the conclusion is the Spirit is using the Scriptures as an instrument to lead and guide God's people. In Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my pathway. Number five, the Holy Spirit might want to give understanding to His people. But the Bible says the Scriptures give understanding to God's people. So the Holy Spirit is using the Scriptures as a means, an instrument, to give understanding. In Psalm 119, verse 130, The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Number six, the Holy Spirit might want to make God's people spiritually minded. But the Scriptures make God's people spiritually minded. So the Spirit is using the Scriptures as an instrument to make people spiritually minded. In John 6, verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Number seven, the Holy Spirit might want to cleanse someone from their sins. But the Bible says the Scriptures cleanse us from sin. So, putting two and two together, the Spirit is using the Scriptures as an instrument to make people clean. In John 15, verse 3, Jesus said to the apostles, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Number eight, the Holy Spirit might want to sanctify people. That means set them apart from those who are lost. Make them separate from those who are doomed for hell. But the Scriptures do this also. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is using the Scripture as an instrument to sanctify or set God's people apart from the doomed world. In John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Number nine, the Holy Spirit might want to strengthen people. Uh, but the Scriptures strengthen us. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is using the Scriptures as an instrument to strengthen us. Acts 20, verse 32. Paul writes, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Number 10. The Holy Spirit might want to set someone free from sin. But the Scriptures set people free from sin. Therefore, putting two and two together, the Spirit is using the Scripture as an instrument to set men free from their sins. In Romans 6, verse 17 and 18, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. Number 11, 
the Holy Spirit might want to give faith to people, but the Scriptures give faith to people. Therefore, putting two and two together, we draw the conclusion the Spirit is using the Scriptures as an instrument to give faith to people. Romans 10 verse 17, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Number 12, the Holy Spirit might want to fill or indwell people. But the Bible says the Scriptures indwell or fill people. Therefore, the Spirit is using the Word as an instrument to dwell in His people. In Ephesians 5, verses 18 and 19, the Bible says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Here is a command to be filled with the Spirit. How does a person obey that command? How can you be filled with the Spirit? The parallel passage is Colossians 3, verse 16, and it reads, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So the Spirit fills us or indwells us by the instrument of His written word. Number 13, the Holy Spirit might want to produce fruit in the lives of people, but the Scriptures produce fruit in the lives of people. Putting two and two together, we see that the Spirit is using the written Scripture as an instrument to produce fruit in God's people. In Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6, "...because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel." which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. So the Word brings fruit. Number 14, the Holy Spirit might want to work in the lives of God's people, but the Scriptures work in the lives of God's people. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So the Spirit then is using His word, His written scriptures, as an instrument to work in us. Number 15, the Spirit might want to comfort us in times of sorrow, but the Scriptures are said to comfort us in times of sorrow. Therefore, the conclusion is the Spirit is using His Word as an instrument to comfort God's people in times of sorrow. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Number 16, the Holy Spirit might want to give wisdom to God's people. But the Scriptures give wisdom to God's people. Putting these together then, we realize the Holy Spirit is using the Scripture as an instrument or tool in order to give wisdom to the people of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise, for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Number 17, the Holy Spirit might want to beget us or beget a sinner and begin the conversion process. 
But the scriptures say that we are begotten through the scriptures. So the Holy Spirit is using the scripture as a tool in order to begat people. In James 1 verse 18, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Number 18, the Holy Spirit might want to save someone from their sins. But the Bible says the word of God, the scriptures, save us from our sins. Putting these together, we realize the Spirit is using the scripture as a tool to save people from their sins. In James 1 verse 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Number 19, the Holy Spirit might want to purify someone, but the scriptures purify people. Though that means, putting this together, the Spirit is using the Holy Scripture as a tool to purify the souls of men. In 1 Peter 1, verse 22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another with a pure heart fervently. Number 20, the Holy Spirit might want to uh, give a new birth to someone. Be, uh, let them be born again. But the Bible says we're born again by the scriptures. That means the Spirit is using the scripture as an instrument to accomplish this purpose. In 1 Peter 1, verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. That's how we're born of the Spirit, is through the scriptures that the Spirit revealed. Number 21, the Spirit might want to bring about growth in someone's life, but the Scriptures bring about growth. So the Spirit is using the Scripture as a tool to bring about growth. In 1 Peter 2, verse 2, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. Number 22, All things that pertain to life and godliness the Spirit might want to give to us. But the Scriptures give us all things necessary for life and godliness. Therefore, the Spirit must be using the Scriptures to accomplish this. In Second Peter 1, verse 3, According as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to glory and virtue. That brings up the next point, number 23. The Holy Spirit might want to impart to us a divine nature, but the Scriptures give to us a divine nature. The Spirit then is using the Scripture as an instrument to produce a divine nature within people. Second Peter 1 verse 4, Whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. The Spirit, number 24, might want to bear witness and assure us that we are truly Christians. But the Scriptures bear witness to us that we are truly Christians. So the Spirit must be using His Word as an instrument to bear witness to us that we truly are saved and are Christians. In Hebrews 10, verses 15 through 17, the Bible says, The Spirit also witnesses to us. For after He had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then He adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. 
If you'll think carefully about that passage, the Spirit is witnessing to us when we go back and read the Scriptures that He has revealed. Every influence, listen to me again, every influence exerted by the Holy Spirit upon the hearts of men is always said to be done by means of the written Word. That is his instrument. That's how he influences us. Someone argues and says, oh, now wait a minute. I know of one thing the Holy Spirit does that the Word of God doesn't do. And that is the Spirit makes intercessions for us when we pray. Romans 8 verse 26. And there is no passage that says the Scriptures intercede for us. All right. What's the answer to that argument? If you read Romans 8, verse 26 very carefully, you will see that this intercession is something the Spirit does for us, not something He does to us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. This is an influence of the Holy Spirit upon God the Father. This is not an influence of the Spirit upon a man. We're talking about how the Holy Spirit influences, converts, strengthens, purifies, and saves men. We're not talking about influences of the Spirit upon God the Father. And so my point still remains. Every influence exerted by the Holy Spirit upon the hearts of men is always, always done by means of the written word. Today, the Word of God is being assaulted from every angle. On the one hand, there are non-religious people who say that the Word of God is simply an old collection of fables and fairy tales. And on the other hand, there are religious people who reject the Word and say, it's just a book, just ink and paper. Listen, when men reject the Word of God, they are at the very same time rejecting their only source of hope. The Spirit operates upon the hearts of men and women only and exclusively through His written Word. It's an instrument, it's a tool that He's using to influence people. Again, it is not a question of if the Spirit is working in our lives. Of course He's working in our lives. The question is, how does He do it? If you want the Spirit to be operative within your life, number one, you must give attention to reading. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. And number two, you must do what the Word instructs. In James 1, verse 22, the Bible says, Be ye doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Well, thanks for listening to us as we studied this subject of how the Holy Spirit operates upon us. If you're not a member of the Lord's Church, the Church of Christ, I would encourage you to consider obeying the gospel and allowing the Lord himself to add you to his church. There are four steps in the Lord's plan of salvation. First, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In John 14, in verse 1, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. 
believe also in me, he said. Second, you must repent or turn away from all your sins. In Acts 17, verse 30, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Third, you must confess with your mouth that you believe Jesus is the Son of God. In Romans 10, verse 10, the Bible says, With the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And fourth, you must be baptized in water for the remission of sins. In Acts 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. If you will take these four steps, the Lord himself will add you to his church. Acts 2, verse 41 and 47. Thank you for considering our study today. God bless you as you investigate his holy word.